0: We are going to continue in our study of the of the book of Acts. So you can take your Bibles and turn over to Acts 14. Acts chapter 14 is, is where we will be this morning. We've been in 14 for several weeks. And we've been camping out on a, a handful of verses here. Acts 14. Last week we examined, we studied, we expounded upon 21A. 21's kind of, really I just divided it because... It's so meaty, the first half and the back half. So we looked at the first half of verse 21. What did we talk about last week? If you were here, just shout out what we talked about if you were here. We talked about the church's, yeah, that's right, the church's message. The church's mission, and that's the gospel. We talked about the gospel. Um, I defined what it is. I defined its purpose. Um, talked about what it does for sinners and, and how it is different from Religion, and I think that's massive, and so I'd encourage anyone who wasn't here to be interested in finding out more about the gospel or how it's different and juxtaposed to religion. Man, I'd go back and listen to that sermon. It's on our website, and I uh, got just a number of you that, that contacted me and gave me some input. You were really encouraged by it, and it's amazing when we hear the gospel presented, then we hear religion, we find out how religious we actually are and how not gospel we are. And, uh, and that's a problem in the church today and we really need to know what the gospel is so we could differentiate between all of the religion and philosophies and things that are out there and really live in, for Christ and glorify him and enjoy what he's done for us. Um, this morning we will start back up in 21 and we'll cover the back end of it and then we'll just kind of continue to cruise uh, as far as, as, as I can go which probably won't be very far. So uh, let me pray one more time, and then we'll get to studying, all right? Bow your heads with me. Lord, um, I am a dull guy. I am a dull-minded person. I, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, prone to, to seek after. I think the Spirit in me enables me to be so, but on my own, I am not uh, desiring to, to pursue your word and to know your truth, and I tend to reject it and that sinful flesh that I have, and And Lord, just even as a pastor, I struggle with these things, Lord. I tend to be dull of the mind, dull of hearing. And I know that every one of these folks in this room probably wrestles with the same thing and different variations of it, Lord. And and so we want to call out to you. Actually, we want to cry out to you, Lord, that you would um, remove the dullness, that you would give us a a heart to hear from you this morning, to learn from you, to be changed by you, Lord, Lord. I know that I tend to be one of those guys that that is fascinated with hearing... ...but not all that excited about doing. And, uh, And anyone who loves to hear but doesn't do is deceived, as it says in the book of James. And so open our hearts and minds to you this morning, God. Change us, that we would not only hear, but that we would do... ...that we would invest our time, talent, and treasure in the kingdom of God. That we would put forth our best for you... ...because you spared no expense, Jesus... You paid it all. And so, and and your requirement for those who follow you is that we would give it all, Lord. It all belongs to you and that we would give back to you every ounce of our love, of our time, town, and trip. That we would give it all to you. You own it all. And so help us this morning, Lord. Just may there be a breakthrough this morning for some of us. That you would remove the shackles of selfishness, dullness, Lord... That you would do a mighty work here today in our midst. We need you. Without your Holy Spirit, none of us will understand it. We'll hear it, but we won't. We won't it just will not translate. And so Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Open our hearts, minds to you. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. All right, you ready? All right, look at 21. I'm ready. I've been waiting to preach this for about a day. That's how long it takes to put it together. So... I'm pumped to be with you guys today. Let's look at 21 again. I'll just read right through it and we'll have a little exposition of it. It said, when they had preached the gospel speaking of Paul and Barnabas to that city uh, and had many disciples speaking of this city called Derby, and had many disciples, they basically left it and returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. We have been talking about the first church planting missions journey of Paul and Barnabas and And, and, you know, we've been to Cyprus, we've been to and Antioch, we've been to all these different cities. And and last week we talked about their ministry, how they preached the gospel, and we defined the gospel. We talked about how they did that in this place called Derby, which was one of the cities in the region of Galatia. And it says after they preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, that's where we're really going to put our juice today, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, all these cities that they had already done ministry in. The text says that through their gospel preaching, Paul and Barnabas made many disciples. Luke then ends the Derby, that city, he ends the Derby narrative by writing that they went back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, which is Pisidian Antioch, okay, not Syrian Antioch, two different Antiochs. Luke did some serious summarizing here, didn't he? We have seen him go into some incredible depth about Paul's ministry and Paul's way of preaching the gospel and and how people responded to that and all these different things that took place. But in Derby, he really just just gives us a flash overview of their ministry in Derby. It really is all kind of wrapped up in 21. I mean, he doesn't really give us much more than that. It's It's a serious summary here that he gives us. Just a plain, here's what they did over here. Now a quick reading of verse 21 might cause us to think that Paul and Barnabas just simply preached the gospel and and people got saved and then they, you know, kind of moved on the next day, right? You look at 21, it just looks like a Billy Graham crusade. They showed up, they preached like the next day, you know, Monday they show up, Tuesday they preach the gospel and on Wednesday they bounce, kind of like how Billy Graham does it. Greg Laurie, and I'm not implying that that way of doing ministry is, is not all that great or important or effective, but if we just simply read 21, it looks like they're just out on a crusade. And, and that is not at all how it played out. Luke is just simply summarizing. He has given us so much meat on Paul and Barnabas's ministry in previous chapters that, you know, and, and, we, and because of that, we can assume, I, I, I know we can, that when they did ministry in this city and he gives us all this detail about it, that's how they did it in every city. And so we don't want to be led to believe because of the shortness of 21 that they just popped in and popped out. That's not at all what they did. You know, evangelists, we got these evangelists in the world today and they They come on this day, they preach the next day, and then they bounce on Thursday. But that is not how this played out at all. And and we know that to be true because it says right there in the text. You want to see the clue? What do you think the clue is? They made what? Okay? It's a little bit difficult to make a bunch of disciples overnight. We're called a disciple. That's what we should change it to. The Messiah, disciple, right? Right? Discipleship is a little bit of a process, What is a disciple? I think it's important for us to know, according to the New Testament, a disciple can simply be one who loves and and follows Jesus, who obeys Jesus, just a follower of Jesus. So it can be someone who, you know, we can describe a disciple as one who just simply follows Jesus. Can you preach the gospel and have the Holy Spirit turn a bunch of people from darkness to light and have them begin to follow Jesus the next day? Absolutely. Disciples can be made overnight, I suppose, or in a moment. And that's kind of the shallow way to look at a disciple. Um, They made many disciples. Now think of what Matthew 28, 19 to 20 says. In that particular text we see a disciple as one who has been what? Not only saved but baptized in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And then it says basically that is trained to follow and obey every command of Christ. Now how long would it take? ...to get a whole bunch of people baptized... ...and to train them the Christian basics. Can you do that overnight? No. No way. So I think in this text we should see disciple... ...as one who has been invested into. They spent time here. Even though it's all summarized in 21... ...they didn't come and leave the next day. They stayed and they made disciples. And every time disciples were made... ...everywhere in the book of Acts... ...they're baptized, man... It takes a little bit of time to do that. And the requirement in discipleship making is that you would not only baptize people, but that you would train them how to obey Jesus Christ. You would give them Christ's commands and that you would train them how to do it. And I'm just, I'm just telling you here, I, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, man, this is, this is a process here. How long would it take to do this? More than a day or two right absolutely. I would say that Paul and Barnabas were probably in Derby for several months if not a year. Don't let verse 21 think, cause you to think that they were like Billy Graham. And went here and went to and fro and did ministry that way. They didn't. In fact they stayed in and Antioch. For about a year when they went up there and began to preach the gospel and do these things. And support guys who were already doing that ministry up in that area. They were there for a whole year teaching and preaching in that church. Doing what? Making disciples. Not only those who have given their hearts to Jesus Christ. But those who have been baptized in the name of the Trinity. And those who obey him. Know who he is. Know what he's about. Know what he's commanded. Know the implications of the gospel. And begin to live those things out. That takes time man. That is my big point here when we look at this verse, that it takes time to train disciples, which means that Paul and Barnabas stayed there for some time. Now this, of course, by implication means that Paul and Barnabas were not crusaders by any means who desired to get converts. On the contrary, they were gospel preaching, church planting, disciple making, leadership appointing missionaries. That's who they were. And one of the unfortunate things about teaching in the church today... ...and throughout the centuries, and more particularly in the last century... ...is that we somehow have gained this view of Paul and Barnabas... ...of being like Billy Graham. Again, I'm not saying that Billy Graham is bad. I'm not saying he's wrong. But I can tell you one thing. The most effective way of ministry is to make disciples through planting churches... ...not showing up in the city and blowing through it like a breeze. You've got to go into a city, preach the gospel... Plant churches so that the churches can together sustain the faith and and help build up and invest in people's lives. And that's who these guys were, man. If Paul and Barnabas were afforded the opportunity and the time to train new disciples, they would remain in a city to do that. In previous cities, the unbelieving Jews prevented them from doing so, though. We've seen them skip around from city to city, but it wasn't because they wanted to. Not at all. These guys helped to take people from the point of conversion to becoming mature disciples who were able to stand on their own spiritual legs together in community and to even become leaders. In previous chapters, we read about how they did this in Syrian Antioch, and we must remember something that's so very important that I myself have abused. And succumb to at times. Maybe you have too. But we must be reminded by this very text. That conversion is not the goal of Christianity. We do not go out and proclaim the gospel. To to put notches on our belts. And yet I have done that. Where I've gone and preached. Or where I've gone and prayed some kind of a prayer with somebody. Never to see them again. Not to have any idea where they're at or what they're doing. No, 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 no. The goal of Christianity is not to convert people. People who repent and people who believe in Jesus Christ must be nurtured. They must be cared for. They must be trained. They must be discipled. Amen. The world is filled with powerful, powerful influences. There are Endless deceptions and false philosophies in it. Some even creep into the church. The devil does what? He roams the earth to and from, looking for one to devour. The flesh itself is a powerful adversary. Bottom line, there are more enemies in the world than allies. And we have been commanded to make disciples who can stand arm in arm against the world, against the devil, and against the flesh. We are to join together to fight with the sword of truth, the Bible. We are to sound the victory trumpet, which is the gospel. Christ has defeated the enemy, all our enemies. The fact of the matter is it takes time to equip people for this kind of battle, doesn't it? We are referred to as soldiers in the New Testament in several places. You think in terms, and we've got a a few military men in here, but when you join the military, you certainly don't get rushed off. You know, you join Monday, and by Wednesday, you're in Vietnam just to get off a helicopter and to get shot immediately. No, what do you do when you join the military? They send you to a boot camp. And then even from that point, even if you go off to battle after boot camp, there is training that continues. In fact, when you're in the military, you're always in a mode of training, aren't you? Well, we are being equipped for battle. We are being prepared for battle. Before we can really engage, we must be discipled, we must be trained. So what am I saying? Discipleship is a process. It takes time to train people how to obey the commands of Christ and to equip them to train others. This is one of the reasons why God ordained local churches. The local church is the training center of the saints. When you come here to RHC or to whatever church you're from, you are being trained how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and you are being equipped as a person who can make disciples who can train others everything that is given to you here is meant to be passed by you to others and listen carefully you are not here for yourself okay American Christianity would have you believe the opposite of that You are not here for yourself. You are not a consumer. Okay? When you join the military, you don't go into it for yourself, do you? You go to serve your fellow man, your country, the good of a nation. And it is the same thing in the faith. It is the same thing when we come to church. We are being equipped so that we can not only Uh, Do what we need to do that glorifies God. Serve him that we could impart or pass what we've been given to others. God gives us grace for the world. Don't forget this. It's huge. It is the gospel. Okay? You are here. You are being trained so that you can equip and train others. Redemption Hill Church was planted for the glory of God, for you, for others, and for the benefit of this community, for the good of this city. Have you ever read the RHC mission statement? I have to admit, I modify it about every three weeks, because guess what? I'm learning just as you are, right? You know, we started out at this point, it's like, oh, That stinks. Changed it to here. That's a little better, you know. Two years later, it's like, okay, I think we nailed it. No, in two months we'll be going. Now you've got to change the whole thing. So it's always kind of a moving thing as we understand the gospel in more of its depth. But have you have you read the latest edition of it? (laughs) Yeah, six point four or whatever. Exact. What is iTunes? What does my phone? What does it operate on now? Like seven point four. You got an iPhone, so. But here's, here's how it reads right now. It says, Redemption Hill Church exists to bring glory to God... ...through making gospel-centered disciples who make gospel-centered disciples. That's the latest edition. Redemption Hill Church exists to bring glory to God through making disciples... ...gospel-centered disciples who make gospel-centered disciples. The church is about making disciples, gospel-centered disciples... ...who make disciples... You are being discipled so that you can glorify God with your life and disciple others who will do the same. At RHC, we have developed ministries where disciples can make disciples. Take, for instance, Awana or Kids Ministry or Youth Ministry. These are great examples of ministry where you can take what you're learning, take what this grace that God is giving you, and you can impart it to others, especially children. How... Here's the thing, I can never figure out why children's ministry to so many adults seems like just the most miserable place to do ministry when if you think about it, it really is one of the front lines of the battle. That you would be equipping children. Boy, we don't hesitate and, and you know, waste any time you know whining and, and you know, being ticked off and moaning about the condition of our country. Do you not realize that it's pretty much being led by a lot of young people who just don't know which way to go? How important is it then... To serve and to, 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 to serve children and to impart the grace and the things that God is giving you to them. The truth, the scriptures, the Bible, the gospel, Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. I can't think of a more important place to, to invest your time and talent. And yet I don't want to do it. I don't want to be down there with them rugrats. Well guess what? I am now revoking your ability to complain about the condition of our country. You have no right to complain if you're not investing in those who are going to be leading it in the years to come. Amen? So don't go off on, you know, what would have happened if, I won't even do it, I was going to get political. Whoo, that was close. uh, Man, I was going to say, what would have happened if so-and-so would have been in a good youth ministry when he was a kid? I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to say that it was about the president. Okay. Do you see the value of it, though? We have ministry here where you can invest in others, where you can make disciples. Now, before moving on, let's ponder something else about this great text. So we're all kind of in the disciple mode here. Let's ponder something else. In the previous chapter, chapter and a half, I'd say, we learned that Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel and planted churches in Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch, right? But due to hostile crowds really that were inflamed by unbelieving Jews what happened to these guys I alluded to it earlier they were forced to leave these cities and therefore leave these new disciples these converts if you will behind right you may recall Paul and Barnabas were driven from the district of Pisidian Antioch you may recall that Paul and Barnabas fled from Iconium after learning about a plot to kill them you may recall that Paul and Barnabas left Lystra right after Paul was nearly stoned to death right right These guys would have stayed if they could have, but they were driven away. in all three of those cities, and we have studied them in great detail in the previous weeks, what happened to these guys? They had been forced to leave, and to leave what? All these new Christians behind. And think, if they'd been in Derby for a year, that's a year later. But in verse 21, what do we see? We see them return. Isn't that phenomenal? They go back and take into consideration the great danger that they faced. They had been driven by force with threats of violence. In one case, Paul was almost killed. And here they go back. Man. And then in verse 22, we will see that they basically picked up where they left off. Paul and Barnabas were not about to abandon these believers. They went back as soon as they could and i'm reminded of that universal military code and i know the rangers love to use it but a lot of the armies around the world use it and it simply says never leave a man what behind never 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 these cities that we're talking about here in this text were hostile towards paul and barnabas filled with enemies but they were unafraid and determined to go back into enemy territory to encourage and train their Christian comrades. They would not leave their brothers and sisters behind. Even the, no, the helicopter, the plane went down, it got ugly over there. They went back. They didn't leave them behind. And you've got to know that they were surrounded by malicious, antagonistic, violent Hate-filled people. They went right back in there. They went back to do what? To equip them for spiritual battle. They went back to train them how to fight and be victorious in the trenches of life and ministry. Paul and Barnabas simply displayed incredible courage, bravery, and a deep, sincere love for the church... Right? Because they went back to love and care for the church. But they also displayed a tremendous love for the unbelievers and enemies. Because they went back to grow up these Christians, to raise them up, to invest in them, so that they could, what, reach their community. Even though those, these towns were filled with hate-filled, bloodthirsty people who hate Jesus Christ and hate the gospel, these men went back to equip that, those little churches that they had so that they could reach these hate-filled people. It's just mind-blowing when you think of the ministry of these men. And where did they get all this courage? From the one who is ultimately and infinitely courageous, and that's Jesus Christ. He takes cowards by the power of his might and gospel. He turns them into bold men and women for his namesake. We're seeing that play out in this text. It's quite astonishing. Another really amazing thing that we will see in verse 22 is that it presents somewhat of a biblical model for discipleship. A few years ago, and this is so important, a few years ago there was quite a stir in the church about how to make disciples. I remember I was a part of a large church then and that that was going on in all the churches, especially the big ones. How do we make disciples? What do we need to do? You know. Pastors were asking, how do we make disciples and what should a disciple be like? And, and some were figuring, well, let's figure out what one should look like and then we'll know what it, he or she needs to look like and then we can target towards that and form our ministries to make that, that you know, the, the, the end result, if you will. Willow Creek Church near Chicago thought that pushing people or forcing them through a grid uh, which consisted of a multitude of programs would make disciples... Bill Hybels wrote about this in great detail and several years later they realized that this tactic was a colossal failure. All it did was burn a bunch of people out because they were, you know, you got a husband who's at an event every night because he's being told this, you, you want to be a disciple, you got to go to all these things and jump through all these hoops. Next thing you know he's getting a divorce because he's not home to love his wife and family well, they found out after doing all this that was a huge mistake and then cut about half their programs out and then went right back to it as a dog returns to its vomit and just started forcing people right back through a grid of program, endless programs. Some people never learn. Another church thought that a real disciple is one who becomes self-sufficient, a self-feeder if you will. In other words, a disciple is a person who reads and studies the Bible on their own it's comical, they said when people reach the point that they begin to read and study the Bible for themselves, we know we have made disciples, we know we have done our job, but what these folks who thought this brilliant idea up, what they failed to realize is that every true believer has a desire already to study the Word if if you find yourself lacking any thirst for the word, guess what? You're not a believer. It's that simple. I'm so tired of this half-hearted believers and lukewarm. Jesus spits you out of his mouth if that's who you are. I know it's harsh. But aren't you getting t- are you I'm getting tired of it. You know? Not a fan There are no fans. There's either believers or there's non-believers. There's no half-believers. If you read the Gospels, it's just the way it is. I know it stinks. I know it's not fair. But is this about fairness? Well, you know, the minute that they begin to just... Look, he's doing it. He's reading his Bible. Yes, let's celebrate. Let's record that. Let's write that down and let's have a victory celebration because Phil is in his Bible. I have been in my Bible since the moment that Jesus Christ rescued me. Nobody had to tell me to get into the Bible. I couldn't stop reading the darn thing. Now, is everyone's Faith like mine, does everyone have the same fervor and juice and energy? I think everyone's on a different trajectory. But dang it, if you're a true believer, you should love the word. Peter says, like newborn babies do what? Crave. That's what they do. You don't give a newborn baby milk? What happens? (laughs) A little miniature nuclear cloud. Explosion. Right? And how do you quiet that baby? have peace again. What do you think happens to you if you don't get in the word? I can't figure out what to do. All these problems and things are stacked. You know what these people fail to realize is that every true believer of Jesus Christ does it. Does there, are there ebbs and flows? Yeah. Yeah. Some days you just can't get enough of the word. You find yourself reading it all day. And then the next day you say, I read it all day yesterday so I don't have to today, right? Right? I do that. I I stink. But at least I had the desire on Tuesday and then by Thursday when I'm, you know, the world's had its way with me, I'm like, I need you. Oh. Tear the pages up and bathe in it. No, I wouldn't do that. That's like a sacrilege. Just love the word. Don't you love the word? What they fail to realize is that Believers just have this. Every true believer will meditate on the word. They'll delight in it. The psalmist who represents every true disciple of Jesus Christ wrote this in Psalm 119, 15 to 16. He said, I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Sounds like somebody was pretty excited about the word. Is that you? So, the chief end of discipleship is not self-sufficiency and self-feeding. This is ridiculous if anything. Discipleship, listen carefully, discipleship should move people further and further away from self-sufficiency into a deeper abiding in Christ and into transparent gospel-centered Christian community. Did you hear what I said? That's the goal of true discipleship. It's not to drive you further into yourself and into your own realm, and into your own world, and into your own little studies and all these things, discipleship is meant to drive you further and further into this most marvelous and mysterious gospel of Jesus Christ. Greater reliance on him, less reliance on yourself. Amen? If you don't believe that, I hope you do. It's not because I wrote it, it's just what the word teaches. If pastors get, and here's where it gets crazy, if pastors get discipleship wrong, everything about their churches will be wrong. Well, they still say the name Jesus there, yeah. Wrong discipleship reads to wrong worship, wrong teaching, wrong evangelism, and wrong programming. Pastors in churches simply cannot afford to be wrong when it comes to how to disciple believers. And I might add that discipleship is not rocket science, man. It isn't confusing. Men are the ones who muddy it up. We are the ones that make it confusing. We are the ones that make it difficult. We are the ones that muddy up what God has clearly laid out in the scriptures. I'm pretty much of one accord with uh, John MacArthur. And I I like what he does. And I I don't agree with every single thing he says. But I, I like his position on this. And he just simply says that biblical ignorance is the cause of all of our trouble. People do not know what the word says about these things. Therefore, they just do whatever sounds right or whatever someone else is doing. That's one of the biggest problems in the church today. Churches just copy churches instead of looking at the word and seeing what it says. I, I believe ignorance is the cause of these things. If pastors do not know the word, then how can they care for God's elect by building up their faith through the knowledge of, you know, through, uh, the, the, knowledge of the truth in accordance with all godliness Titus 1.1. How can they do that? If they don't know the word, how can they build people up in it? Into all godliness. If, if the shepherds do not know the word, the sheep will not know it either. Like the Bible says in Hosea 4.9, I know it's a little out of context here, but I think it's, there's a parallel universal meeting. It says, simply like priest like people. What does that mean? It means the people become like the priest that lead them. And consequently, they receive the same things that the priest receives. And that's really the meaning of that text. This is why it is so critical when it comes to selecting a church. When you join a church, you are putting yourself under the theological umbrella of its elders and preachers. If they are wacky, it's only a matter of time before you become wacky. Or before you realize what's happening, get the heck out of there. Right? Right? You say, they're wacky, they're teaching some crazy weird stuff over here. You see their wackiness and you bounce before you become wacky. My wife and I were recently discussing how easy it is for for believers, those in the church, to become deceived. We were talking about how church folks today and droves are beginning to support gay marriage. You know, my immediate thought is just anyone who supports gay marriage, just dismiss them as a non-believer. Because... The word of God is lucidly clear. Well, and I got to thinking about it. Isn't that our first thought? Just dismiss anyone who would support any kind of behavior like that or any other blatant sin? Just dismiss them as a non-believer? Well, you think about it for a moment. We need to know that the devil is very, very, very clever. He uses strategy when it comes to deceiving Christians. He rarely comes right out and declares his fallacy because he knows that the average believer is capable of seeing it and then doing something about it. And so he never comes right out and just says, this, and then everyone goes, are you crazy? That's not how he does it. It's a slow fade, a little bit at a time, leading us away. That's how he does it. The devil will often work to lead us away from the truth through subtle and slight manipulations of the word that are backed by rational arguments. I recently read a paper written by a theology professor who supports gay marriage. And I'm just using this as an example, not because I'm picking on gays. Jesus died for homosexuals. He saves them. We are to love them. I'm just using it as an example because it is, a, it is one of the stronger ones out there in our culture and in the church. Now, I recently read this paper by a theology, you heard me, right, theology professor who supports the practice. In the first half of his paper, he leads readers to all the verses about the subject. He takes you to Leviticus, he takes you into Romans, he takes you all over. I mean, you're just, you're like, this is, man, this guy's got it. He's taking me to all the verses and and talking about the subject. He actually, in the first half of his paper, he actually, that's a long paper, it's like 30 pages. I was like, oh my gosh, when's it going to end? He actually, right? You ever done that? Please come to an end. He actually builds, through the first half of his paper, he actually builds an argument against the practice. He talks about how it's sin here, it's sin here, it's sin here. It, over in Leviticus, it was sin to do this, it's what the people were doing in the air. It's sin, 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 sin. But then, about halfway through the paper, he began to argue against each verse, each passage, using its own context. Well, you have to understand what he meant back here in Leviticus when the people were traveling around and And over here in Romans he was talking about pedophilia, which isn't bad like homosexuality. Uh, He just begins to try to argue against every plain black and white truth with the context that it was said in, that it was written in. It was amazing. I couldn't believe it. He's arguing and arguing against via the context and then what would he do? He would back... Every contextual argument against the plain truth with rational arguments. Well, if this happens here, then this should happen. Or if God did this over here, then we know because if he did it here, then that must mean he would do it here. Rational arguments, presenting them till the cows come home. This is the halfway point of the paper. And now you're going, I think I just got into a bait and switch. Some of us would be going, dude, this guy's, this is, yeah, I think he's right. By the time you get to the end of his paper, homosexuality is love, and love is not sin, and God accepts and supports anyone who loves. This man made one of the most compelling arguments in favor of the practice I've ever read. In fact, while I was reading it, I was going, gee, I wonder. I wonder if some of us, including me, are off a little bit here. And what I'm telling you, this example I'm giving you, is how persuasive and how much um, strategy the devil uses in leading people away from the truth. I guarantee you this professor didn't start out that way. But he was sat under somebody's theological umbrella for a season. And this guy kept making arguments and arguments and arguments... ...and backing it with what he perceived to be theological truths... ...and rational arguments and and justification, all these things. And then what happens? Your view changes. And that is exactly how the devil does it. This man's paper was kind and compelling. And I have no doubt that it was winsome over many weaker brothers and sisters. Go to that theological seminary and sit under his teaching. You think you're going to come out of a class like that where you're bombarded for at least a year or a semester or two or three under teaching like that? This is so unfortunate. And this is what's happening in our seminaries all over the place. Fuller. And it's not just that particular issue. There are a wide range of deceptions out there. Liberalism is really the root of it all. Don't think of it in terms of just straight political liberalism. The church has done battle with liberal theologians, liberal scholars, liberal teachers and preachers for almost 2,000 years. Augustine dealt with them. Luther dealt with them. And that's where this stuff comes from. So we need to know that this is how the devil deceives believers. He uses slight and subtle manipulation backed by rational arguments. And he perpetuates his fallacies, his lies through all sorts of people. Including the ones that we are supposed to trust the most. Theology professors, pastors, and so on. There are innumerable deceptions out there. Most of them are handcrafted by the devil to appeal to our flesh and sinful nature. That's how he does it. The shepherd, however, must be rooted, the pastor, the elder, must be rooted in the scriptures so that he can identify the deceptions and effectively guard the sheep against them. He must examine the whole counsel of God's word so that he can become equipped to properly care for and disciple God's people. And in verses 22 to 23, Luke basically lists four things that Paul and Barnabas did when they visited Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. And these things really are about discipleship. Knowing the word and imparting the truth to others so that they can be biblical, gospel-centered disciples. Now let's look over at 22 and 23. When they went, what they do? It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I'd like to begin to examine The four things that I already mentioned, I didn't talk about what they are, but there are four things that Paul and Barnabas did in these cities. They are all about discipleship. Really more critically, the first couple are. Number one, what did they do when they went? They strengthened the souls of the disciples. We see it so clearly in 22a, right? This is massive, As I said earlier, we have many adversaries. The world and the devil are are in opposition to our faith. Our flesh is weak and feeble. We are prone to wander and go astray. Every one of us is literally a decision or two away from becoming a prodigal son or daughter. It ain't that hard to slip and go off in the wrong direction. People wear us down through criticism, ridicule, tribulation, persecution. Think about the churches in Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. These cities were hostile towards Paul and Barnabas, which means that they were hostile towards these new disciples. Man, they had their hands full. Can you imagine what these believers were going through while Paul and Barnabas were away? Those Unbelieving Jews were determined to stamp out the name of Jesus Christ and his church. They had the same kind of zeal as Saul of Tarsus. They were relentless. We actually saw them in a previous text travel about a hundred miles to go to other cities to attack Paul and Barnabas while they were preaching the gospel in those cities just to try to stop the gospel ministry. These guys were devoted to stopping it. It would be foolish for us to think that these disciples in these cities, these newer believers, had it easy like us. No way. Their environment was probably miserable. In 1 Corinthians 4.13, Paul referred to the apostles as what? The scum of the world and refuse of all things. The worst trash of all time. That was the public opinion of the apostles and, quite frankly, of the church, of Christians. I mentioned this many months ago, but the title Christian is actually a term of derision. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote by vulgar appellation, they were commonly called Christians. Calling a person a Christian in the first century was like calling a person a piece of dung, I won't use the other word, or garbage. Today, you piece of dung that follows Jesus. You worthless crap. That's how they viewed Christians then. They were despised, ridiculed. In a few short years, Emperor Nero would unleash atrocities against the church. Nero did to Christians during that first century what Hitler did to Jews in the last. To say that these disciples had it rough is an understatement. And what did they need because of their environment and situation? They needed to have their souls strengthened. Notice that the strengthening of souls is the first thing listed that Paul and Barnabas did when they visited these people. It's not three or four. It's the very first thing we see in the text. You see it? Nice little insight. These... Paul and Barnabas, when they went in, they could tell that these folks were beaten down. They could tell that they were worn out. They could tell that they were pressed but not crushed. They could tell that they needed their souls strengthened. And one of the things that we pray for, usually, if we remember, we certainly try to before we execute a worship service on Sunday morning. That's probably the worst word you could use to do it. But before we even have a worship service... We realize that people are coming into this place beat to a pulp spiritually. That the devil has been on you all week and that the world has been on you all week and your flesh has been jacking you up. You come into this place beaten and worn out. And what is meant by our preaching so often is that you would be strengthened. That you could go back out on Monday and fight. And that is what you see in the text here. They came and they saw that these people were worn out. They began to strengthen their souls. But how did Paul and Barnabas strengthen their souls? Luke doesn't give us any details, really, I suppose. I guess the whole text there kind of gives details, but he doesn't really break that down. He just says they've strengthened their souls. Luke doesn't give us much details, but I'd like to suggest four things. The Apostle Paul used them regularly to strengthen the church, as we see in his epistles The first thing is prayer. Prayer can build up and strengthen disciples. Can't it? You ever feel whipped and then you pray with some godly person and your spirit is lifted. and You feel the strength of the Lord enter your veins. You feel like, I think I just need to leave church right now. I know it's about to begin, but I need to just go out there and deal with the world. (laughs) There's something just immensely powerful about prayer. It's, It's communing with God who is infinitely powerful. I love how Ephesians 3, 14 to 16 kind of lays it out there. For this reason, I, this is Paul speaking, bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. We may as well translate that little word as soul. What did Paul preach for when he thought of the church at Ephesus and other churches? He thought, man, I'm going to pray that they would be strengthened, knowing that prayer strengthens, you see. So we can be strengthened through prayer. Be the gospel. That is the biggest howitzer on the battlefield. It just destroys, it just destroys Wicked, wickedness it annihilates philosophy. and annihilate. It's just amazing. The gospel is a powerful weapon. When the gospel is preached, several things can happen. Right, the lost can be called to repentance and faith. Believers can be corrected and put back on track. Track. Believers can be strengthened in the faith. Right. Uh, we tend to think in the church that we need to hear the gospel one time. We pray some simple. Kind of little prayer and we follow the leader on this guy up here. And then once we've heard the gospel, we just move on to all these other things. You need to hear the gospel every week just as I do. Constantly reminded of what Christ has done. So when the gospel is preached, a lot of things happen. Now Romans 6.25 says this. God is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. What does the gospel do? What does prayer do? Strengthens. What does the gospel do? It, yeah, it saves and does all these wonderful things, but it also strengthens those, the believers, right? Amazing. See the Lord's Supper and call it communion. This is an interesting one, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We all need to realize something very important in this verse. And you're probably thinking, how does that have anything to do with communion or where you're going with this about strength? And it has everything to do with it. Because what you need to know right now, Christian, is that you are not the source of your own strength. Your faith that you have, that you've been given, is not the source of your strength. Your faith is weak and feeble just as mine is. Strength comes from and through the death of Jesus Christ. As the hymn rightly says, there is what in the blood? Power. And where did the blood come from? At the death of Jesus as it poured out of his veins and coursed out of his veins. As he died to pay your sin debt. That's where power is, friends. It's not in your faith, it's not in your energy, it's not in your, you don't have strength. You don't have any of that. Strength and power comes from the death of Jesus. When we come to the Lord's table, we reflect on the blood and death of Jesus who is the source of our redemption and the provider of our strength. The blood and death of Jesus are the wellspring of our life and strength. Remembering the finished work of Jesus in the death of Jesus. Remembering the finished work of Jesus in the death of Jesus refreshes us and strengthens us and it strengthens our faith. This is why J.C. G- Ryle, I love him, he wrote, we are strengthened at the Lord's table. Why? Because we reflect upon his death and his finished work, which is ultimately the source of our strength. So remember, strength is not found in our own life, in our own ability, in our own faith. It is only found in the death of Jesus Christ, in his Blood. And when you are beaten down and worn out, remember his death and you will be rejuvenated and strengthened. This is why we celebrate communion every week at RHC. It is a weekly reminder that our forgiveness, our power, and our strength are in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I might add that that work is, as he said on the cross, finished. It's all in. Him, you will find it nowhere else. Hallelujah. D, fellowship. First Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Fellowship is essential because it is literally where we mix it up and where we share our victories and struggles and, and where we love, encourage, and build one another up. In Acts two forty two to forty-seven, we read that the church was devoted to what? We went over this months ago, probably a year over a year ago. They were devoted to teaching, fellowship, communion, and prayer. The church was bold and courageous during those days. Acts four thirty-one. God used believers to strengthen one another during those fellowship gatherings. Believers encourage one another to persevere and to be bold in the face of much opposition. Timothy Keller recently said that fellowship or community is the deepest place of Christian discipleship, encouragement, strengthening. I don't think that Mr. Keller was trying to devalue the Sunday gathering or you know the preaching of God's word when he said these, this. I don't believe it at all fellowship however is that moment or event where we can discuss the word and challenge one another and hold one another accountable and provide perspective and clarity and encouragement and strengthening so I think that he's right I think Keller's right when he says that's the place of deepest discipleship are you being discipled here yeah But when you mix and mingle with your brothers and sisters and you talk about the word and break it down and apply it and correct each other and admonish one another and exhort one another and love one another and strengthen one another, wow, what happens there? So we have prayer, the gospel, communion, and fellowship. All are essential to the strengthening of disciples and to the discipleship process It's right there in the text. I know some of it's implied, but if you go back and read the epistles and and do a little investigating, you will see that those are the things that Paul constantly encouraged people to engage in so that they could be strengthened, so that they could be discipled and built up and readied and prepared and equipped for battle. Because we are in a battle, my friends. Now we have to draw our time to a close, and we'll continue next week as we continue to expound on these wonderful verses I was hoping to get through the rest of it today but that's not going to happen I think maybe I'd have you focus on this one of the key points that I made earlier was really just kind of correlates with the, the, the mission of this church and that's to that we desire as an elder board or as, a, as a church period to make gospel centered disciples who make gospel centered disciples right That's what we're about, okay? And and that's what we see in the scriptures. That's what we see in the earlier chapter of Acts. And that's even what we see in our text to some degree, this constant investment in others' lives. Paul and Barnabas went back to disciple and to set these people up so that they could do the same. And so maybe I would just ask you a few questions that you could apply today and ponder as we close The mission of this church is to make disciples who make disciples. And that's what we're commanded to do according to Matthew 28 and other places. Question to you, are you making disciples? You're in this room right now, you're being discipled. If you come here regularly, you're being discipled. If you go to some other church, I'm pretty sure you're being discipled there if you're being taught the word and these things. What are you doing about it? God is being generous with you and gracious towards you and giving you his grace. And giving you wisdom and knowledge and his truth and his word. He's changing you. How are you taking all that goodness and all that he gives you? And how are you imparting that to others? That's a great question. Are you making disciples? And then who are you discipling? Well, if you're a parent, I certainly hope you've begun the process with your own children if you have them. That'd be a starting place. You would be passing on what you're learning and investing in their lives. Are you making disciples? How are you discipling them? Or who are you discipling? And then the third one, how are you discipling them? Are you doing what we studied here? Don't think in your mind that as soon as they start reading the word on their own, my job is done. As some pastors think that that's the, the ultimate McNugget fruit of discipleship, that they'd be self-feeders. Your discipleship ought to lead them to pursue Jesus with all their might, not themselves. How are you doing it? How are you discipling your children? How are you discipling neighbors? How are you discipling coworkers? How are you making disciples? And then lastly, what do you need to change about yourself this morning? And I think that would be probably the big application to to those of you who aren't investing in others. I'd be as gracious as I can as I say this, but don't think for a moment that you just keep coming here for you. Okay? Maybe today's the turning point in your life. You'd realize right now that, man, I have just taken and taken and taken, and as much as I can't stand consumerism in the church, I am a consumer. Because if all you do is take, you are a consumer. That's what consumers do. They consume. We are not to be consumers. We are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we take and give. We take and we give. That's how we make disciples. Take, apply, give generously. Are you making disciples? Who are you discipling? How are you discipling them? What do you need to change? Maybe you just need to change the way that you disciple. You're not doing these things. You're not strengthening as we learned in that verse. That is a critical part of discipleship. Strengthening followers of Jesus Christ. Doing it through prayer, the gospel, communion we do at church but that's fine. And then fellowship with them. Challenge you with these things and, and Lord willing I hope you come back for the second half next week and Lord willing that we would even be here. He could come back and I'd be pretty much cool with that. Although there's so much work to be done, isn't there? And he comes back, like you said earlier, Aaron, it's it's wonderful for us and terrible for those who aren't in Christ. So, we're going to have a time of communion and maybe this would be a great time for you to reflect on maybe, maybe, maybe the whole point of communion this morning is that you would just be strengthened. I know many of you are beaten down and You're struggling with various things. Maybe it's persecution, tribulation, these things this church was dealing with. Maybe it's health issues, whatever it is. That God would strengthen you during this wonderful time of reflecting upon the death of Jesus Christ. The spilt blood. That's where the power is, family. Maybe that's what you do. Maybe you just ask some questions before you take the bread and and cup and, and say, Gosh, I need to change some things about my life. Lord, what are they? Oh, I need to disciple others. I need to start investing into others. Whatever, whatever it is. Know that ultimate goal of this time is just to reflect on what's been done for us, that our victory is in Christ and Him alone. All we ever need or will ever need is in Him. We won't find it anywhere else. He is our soul's resting place, and He has done a mighty work for us, and to Him be all the glory and honor and praise. And Father, as we enter into this time, I pray that the saints would love you and worship you and worship you apply these truths that may they be strengthened in this moment Maybe some are convicted that they haven't been discipling others or investing in others but you'd encourage them to do so now and they could repent of that and align themselves with your will and you are so gracious and loving and merciful and that you forgive us freely I don't know what's going to happen with these folks in you now but I pray that More than anything, they would remember what you did on Calvary. That you died. And that you bled. That our forgiveness, the remission of our sin is in your blood. Spilt blood. That there is power in your blood. May we be strengthened by reflecting and remembering what you did. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.